It is uh, sweet, beautiful, it's glorious to get to worship the Lord in different languages. It reminds us of the peoples all over the world, and today we are celebrating uh, the work that God has been doing in and through his people in North, Central, and South America, uh, a place where I've spent the majority of my life, and uh, I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful to get to be here with you today as we're a church made up of many nations gathering to worship our Lord and Savior. Well, today we are picking back up in the book of Philippians. We took a two-week break, and this week we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 1 through 11, so you're welcome to turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And I want to go ahead and tell you the big theme of our passage. And really, it's one of the big themes of this book. And it's this idea, joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. And Paul is going to address some of the things that will rob you of your joy in the Lord. And then he's going to talk about marks of the Christian who is walking and experiencing the joy of the Lord. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, the words will be on the screen. Let's hear the Word of our Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Um, people, of, of people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered and lost all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that is my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of the resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word says the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak today, nothing of significance will be spoken, so speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, our passage today starts off with the word, finally. And, and usually when you hear someone say the word finally, you assume they're getting near to the end, yet we're 
just over halfway through this book. We're just starting chapter 3 here. And, and this finally could be better translated, perhaps. So then, now then, as a result of what you've just heard, here's your response. Now, anytime we look at Scripture, you always want to put it in the context of the letter that's being written. That helps you understand what's being spoken. And here in the book of Philippians, we find Paul. He's in prison in Rome. He's in a house arrest style prison, which means he has to pay his own expenses. So Paul, problem with being in prison, house arrest, you can't go work, so how do you cover your expenses? Paul needs people to help him. And the church of Philippi, this wonderful, glorious church, they bring a financial gift. They send it with Epaphroditus, one of their leaders, perhaps one of their elders. They send this gift to Paul, and Paul writes back a thank you letter. And in this thank you letter, Paul praises this church. This is a wonderful church. It was a church started uniquely. They usually started churches that you go to the synagogue, but there was no synagogue. It was started by an Asian businesswoman named Lydia, a demon-possessed servant girl who came to the Lord, and a Roman jailer. And this is perhaps the best church that Paul founded. Yet we're going to see this church is not perfect. Paul will write to them, telling them that though he is in prison, he rejoices. He has joy. And this is one of those ideas that we need to hear over and over and over again. Our joy is not based on our circumstances. Maybe a fleeting Happiness can be, but no, our joy is based on the Lord. That's where we find our joy, and Paul's writing that to them, and he gives them some examples. He includes himself, Timothy, Epaphroditus. Ultimate example he gives is that of Christ, because though this is a wonderful church, there's no perfect church. There's no perfect church this side of eternity so if that's what you're looking for, you will continually be in frustration because there's no perfect people. No, this is a good church, but they've got a problem. They've got a couple of women that are grumbling, complaining, and not getting along, and it's beginning to spread. You see, that's, that's the way sin works. Oftentimes when we grumble, when we complain, we spread that negative attitude from one person to the another. And it begins to bring division. And the enemy loves to divide the body of Christ. He wants to divide us over all sorts of things. That's one reason we love celebrating uh, this month, International Month. Because God has brought a people from different ethnicities, different races, different languages, different backgrounds, different seasons of life, different ages, together as one in Christ. And that's a beautiful, that's a glorious thing. We should never desire that our worship be made up of people that are all like us. Think like us, same age as us, same stage of life as us. I love worshiping with the nations. Now that brings challenges. Because every culture we'll see is broken and feels the impact of sin. And with that, certain cultures, every culture has a propensity toward particular sins. Just the way the fall is impacted. And here, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi 
to encourage them. And now he turns, and they've had a problem within with these women, and now he's going to talk about a danger that's creeping into the church, that wants to come into the church. Listen to what he says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. We are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. That's who we're to be. We're to be people that find our joy. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our joy isn't based on circumstances. It's based on a relationship with Christ. If your life is not filled with joy in the Lord, if you're not walking in that, experiencing that, Maybe there's some sin you haven't dealt with. Maybe you haven't confessed it to the Lord. Maybe you aren't seeking Him. Maybe you aren't walking with Him very near. Because He's the source of joy. But here's what the enemy wants to do. He wants us to find our joy or try to find it in all the things out here in this world that come up empty. As you find your joy in the Lord, He's going to say in a minute, this is safe for you. Do you know one of the reasons that finding your joy in the Lord is safe? Because when you find your joy in the Lord, you don't go looking for it in the sin of this world. Because you know the sin of this world's empty. It's bankrupt. It'll never deliver. It may give you a momentary taste, a momentary thrill, momentary satisfaction, but it will never meet the deep longings of your soul. When you find your joy in the Lord, sin begins to look empty like it should. Sin, you run from sin because you know sin will divide and keep you from tasting the joy of the Lord. That's what the enemy wants to do. And Paul says here in this verse 1, he says, To write these same things to you is no trouble. What same things is he talking about? Well, we're not 100% sure. Back in verse 27, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Throughout this book, he repeats over and over and over again, rejoice in the Lord. I find my joy in the Lord. That's a major theme in this book. And you can only find your joy in the Lord as you live out of the foundation of the gospel, the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. Paul repeats things over and over again. And church, never grow weary of hearing sometimes the same thing over and over again. Because when you start to grow weary of it, it's often our pride saying, I've heard this. I know this. I've got it down. And God's saying, I want you to examine your heart. Be honest with yourself. Do you taste the joy of the Lord? Do, do you walk in the joy of the Lord? Or are you finding yourself running to other things, hoping that they will deliver something they were never intended to deliver? Paul says he writes these same things. This is good. Church, the gospel can save any sinner. The person who thinks that they're the most wretched, furthest from God, has lived a life in rebellion against God, the good news of Jesus Christ, he has paid the price for every sin you ever have or will commit. He is sufficient. He's enough. And when you trust in his sacrifice, you are redeemed. Yet the gospel not only saves us, the gospel empowers us to live. And when we live in light of the gospel, we taste the joy of the Lord. 
Paul goes on, he says, this is safe for you. The joy of the Lord walking in, it's safe, it's good. And now he's going to tell them next in verse 2 some dangers. Listen to these. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is one group of people he's talking to. He refers to them as dogs first. That's a very harsh term. Now, there was two Greek words that are used for dogs commonly. One refers to a kind, fluffy pet that you have in your house. The other refers to the dogs on the street. They run in packs. They're nasty. They're dirty. They unclean. If they bite you, you might get a disease and die. They want to seek and destroy. That's the type of dogs he's talking about. And the thing is, is the Jewish people often referred to Gentiles as dogs because they said they want to come and destroy the things of God. And here Paul is speaking to this group of people, who I'll tell you who they are in a minute, as dogs. And he says, they are evildoers. Look out for evildoers. The problem with evildoers, oftentimes they think and believe falsely they are doing good. Oftentimes, evildoers will call what the Word of God says. They'll say, that's evil. Evil gets turned upside down. No, he's saying these guys are evildoers. They're not preaching the true gospel. They're preaching something else. They're preaching a problem. And anytime somebody else, somebody preaches something other than the one true gospel of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that is problematic, troublesome, And I believe Paul would even call it evil because we're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. And he says here they're evildoers. And the third thing he says about this group of people, and this reveals emphatically who they are, they mutilate the flesh. There was a group of people known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers taught that in order to be a Christian, you've got to be Jewish first. Well, what did it mean to be Jewish? Well, They misunderstood and found their Jewish identity primarily in the covenant sign of circumcision that God made with Abraham. In the Old Testament, God made this sign with his people saying, be circumcised, and it was to remind the Jewish people of their depravity, of their sinfulness, and of God's cleansing power. Yet what they had done is they had said, if you're going to be a Christian... You've got to be circumcised first. You've got to be Jewish first and keep the Jewish practices before you can be a Christian. This is called adding to the gospel. This is known as adding to Christ. We believe in Christ plus nothing. Christ is sufficient. We add nothing to the gospel. It's Christ alone. He paid the full price for your sins. There's nothing you bring. Your good works, they don't save you their response to what God has done in your life. But it's not like they add anything to salvation. No, Christ has done it all. He's complete. He's sufficient. And this group of people is teaching something different. They're legalistic. They're teaching a different gospel. The problems of the church today, problems in our world today, are actually nothing new. We continually recycle the same heresies, the same false teachings. You see, the Church of the Middle Ages in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church, 
had erroneously added to the gospel. They said, if you have faith in Christ, that's not enough. You've got to have works. You've got to do these things in order to please God. And the reformers, they rejected that. They said this isn't true. They held to, there's what we call the five solas of the Reformation. The word sola means alone or only. And these are the things that, that we hold to as taught by Scripture. It's Christ alone. Christ alone saves you. There's nothing else that can save you. It's through grace alone. God gives you His grace. You don't deserve it. He gives it to you. That saves you. It's through faith. You have faith in Christ. Faith alone. It's revealed in Scripture alone. There's no other source. Scripture alone is our revelation from God. It's how the Holy Spirit has chosen to speak to us primarily is through God's Word. And it's for God's glory alone. It's not for our glory. It's not so that we can boast. It's for God's glory alone. 400 years ago, 1620, there was a small group, about 102 people, the church of their day in England had been teaching some other things, and they said, we hold to the five solas. We hold to Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, revealed by Scripture alone, for God's glory alone. They fled to the Netherlands. There they found religious freedom, but they didn't have any economic gain. And this group of people believed that in order to be a blessing, economic gain could bless others. So they left the Netherlands, went to England and boarded a boat called the Mayflower and they set sail for what today is known as the United States of America. These were known as the pilgrims. They were Puritans. They came there for religious freedom and for economic gain. And I'll tell you, these two things are still some of the most prominent markers of the country I come from, the United States, though religious freedoms are eroding, though religious freedoms are under attack because the other value has taken over. You see, they said we come here for economic gain. And that's the primary idol of the country I come from. Oh, I still struggle with it. I'm not over it. I have to repent of it often. It plagues. You see, all of our cultures have their propensities to certain sin. And sometimes we look at other cultures and we can see their sin propensities easy. We may not always see ours. I come from a culture where comfort and ease, security in this world is worshipped. And these things still us finding our joy in the Lord. They rob us of that. Now, the Lord wants us to find our joy in Him alone. A little bit of information about the Americas. A little over one billion people live in North, South, and Central America. 81% of those people live in cities. 86% claim Christianity. But I'll tell you, anybody who's from that part of the world will look at that stat and say, that can't be true. And I'll tell you, all that stat is telling us, if somebody says, what, is, what do you believe? Are you a Christian? Are you a Muslim? Are you a Buddhist? They would just check Christian. 
It doesn't mean that they hold to the truth of the gospel. No, only 20% will be what we consider evangelical Christian. And even that word has become under attack. That word has become, in, in many parts of the world, it means a political party. No, that's not what we're using it as. Evangelical means you believe Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible is true. You personally convert to Christ. It's not by your family. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us and that we share our faith. We're called the International Evangelical Church. And I love that name. I think it's a beautiful name for a church. It describes us well. And I pray it'll be what we hold to, that we will be a church that loves and embraces the nations, that we will continue to be a church that celebrates the truth of the gospel, the supreme authority of God's word, and that we're to share our faith. Our faith not to mean, it's not just me. I, I, I need to tell people. People need to know. And as God gives opportunities, we tell people the good news. Why? Because as you find your joy in the Lord, and you look at someone, you go, they're trying to find their joy out here in this world. You go, I've tried that. Bankrupt. Empty. You're never going to find what you're looking for out there. You're only going to find it in Jesus. But the problem for many Christians is that we fail to find our joy in the Lord. And when others look, they think, your life doesn't look that much different than mine. Why would I desire what you have in Christ? Now, Christ is glorious. He's wonderful. He's good. And here he says, these are the mutilators of the flesh. And in verse 3, Paul says, we are the circumcision. Now, for these Judaizers, and the Judaizers, the issue had been dealt with once and for all. In Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, Silas, they gather, and the Judaizers have been saying, in order to be a Christian, you've got to add to it. And they said, no, you don't. It's Christ alone. That was settled, yet these people still come around. They're still plaguing the church. And Paul says, you call yourself the circumcision. We're the circumcision. Romans 2 says we are circumcised of our heart. And that's what he's pulling them back to. And he gives three things, three marks of a Christian here. One, who worship by the Spirit of God. Two, who glory in Christ Jesus. Three, put no confidence in the flesh. This is a pretty good list. This is a good list of markers of a Christian. First he says, who worship by the Spirit of God. One of the problems we often have in the church today is that we've turned worship our understanding of worship, we've narrowed it from what the Bible teaches. We believe worship is when we gather here each week for an hour, 15, hour, 20 minutes, and we sing praises together, and we hear the Word of God together. And there is something beautiful, glorious about the corporate worship, about the body gathered. We're commanded to do that. Scripture speaks of don't forsake the assembly of the righteous that we're to gather together. It's beautiful. It's glorious. We shouldn't miss it. It's one of the challenges of the season we're in in COVID. There are some who, due to health reasons, can't be here with us. That's hard. The enemy loves to divide the church. The enemy loves to tell you, you don't really need to go there. They don't really need you. You don't really need them. Nobody's faith is meant to be an island. We need one another. 
But we often think that's worship. And it is an aspect of worship. It's a part of worship. But biblically defined worship is sacrifice. Worship always involves sacrifice. If your worship costs you nothing, it falls short of the standard that God's word sets. Worship involves dying. Worship always involves sacrifice. Jesus laid down his life. And here uh, in Romans, we get a great definition of worship here. Romans 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is your worship? You lay your life down as a living sacrifice. But the problem of a living sacrifice, living sacrifice loves to get up off the altar that's why every day, regularly, we come and go, I'm going to die to self and live for the glory of God. I'm going to die to self and live in His joy, walk in light of the gospel. It's a daily challenge. This world's going to keep tugging at your flesh to pull you to live for the things of this world. No, we die to self over and over and over again. Worship by the Spirit of God. That's everything in our life. Worship encompasses all of our lives. So when you go to your workplace, the way you do your work, how you do your work, your attitude at your work is an act of worship. To the student, the way that you do your schoolwork, the way that you interact with other students, the way that you interact with your teachers is an act of worship to God. The way that you parent your children the way that you love your wife, the way that you live in your neighborhood, all are acts of worship to God. You're dying to self and living for others. You're living for the glory of God. All of our life is to be an act of worship. Yet the enemy always wants to narrow it down. And the enemy loves to take a group like the Judaizers and say, hey, you're not really a first-class Christian. You're missing something. You don't have all that you need. And he loves to do that. I heard someone say to me that, you know, IEC is a, uh, not a very spirit-filled church. When I heard that, I thought, well, what, what Bible are you reading? Have you misunderstood what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit? The Spirit comes and dwells in the hearts and minds of every single believer. When you become a Christian, the Spirit is in you. And when we gather to worship, the Spirit of God worships in and through us. We worship Him. Now, I think what they were meaning, and they were misunderstanding the Spirit of God and emotion. Emotion's not bad. I, I like emotion. I, I enjoy some emotion. God made us emotional. So it's not a bad thing. But when we say, I'm only really worshiping if I feel this much emotion, then we can turn it about us. So again, there's extremes we can go. Some will say, well, your church isn't really spirit-filled unless you speak in tongues or unless you do these things. Well, Paul says the gift of tongues is the least. Every Christian has been given gifts, every single one of us. And our gifts are given for a purpose. They're not for you. They're given to edify the body. That's why you're given gifts, to bring your gifts, to lay them down as a sacrifice to be used by the whole body for the glory. 
of God. It's one of the reasons I love coming here each week. I get to watch various people within our church come and sacrifice time, energy, all sorts of things, and use their gifts for the glory of God. And sure, you see a lot of people up here on our stage that'll be leading in music and different aspects. They're using their gifts for the glory of God, but there's a lot of people behind the scenes here that you never see. People teaching classes, people running sound, people greeting, people setting up, people cleaning up. We bring our gifts, whatever they may be, and use them for the glory of God. The enemy always wants to add. You see, that's one of the challenges in large part of the church in Central and South America. You see, United States, that part of the world was settled by Northern Europeans, predominantly uh, English. Central and South America was more Southern Europeans, predominantly Spanish and Portuguese. And with them, they brought Roman Catholicism, which the challenge with Roman Catholicism for many, some of you have come from a Roman Catholic background, and you can get the gospel there, but the challenge is, is oftentimes it's the gospel plus something. Works, efforts. Latin America, in 1900, there were only 700,000 people. 1% of the population would be considered an evangelical Christian. Today, that's more than 100 million South America, Central America, more missionaries are coming from there. Between the Americas, over 60% of missionaries out to the world come from this part of the world. So God is using people from this part of the world. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean that it's, there's brokenness there, absolutely. But we can praise God that he's at work. But anytime you see somebody start to add to the gospel, to say Christ is not enough, it should be concerning. It should be troubling. Here he says the second thing, a mark of a Christian. We glory in Christ Jesus. He's our only boast. You can boast in nothing of yourself. You're going to be tempted to boast in yourself. You're going to be tempted to boast in your own giftedness. Any gifts you have, the Lord gave them to you. The Lord put you where you were born. It's no accident you were born in the country you were born into, into the family you were born into, on the day you were born, in the generation you were born. The Lord wants you to be faithful, and as you are faithful, He will take the gifts, the talents, and abilities He's given you and use them right where He wants you. You see, our challenge is not so much giftedness. God's given us the gifts. The challenge is faithfulness. Are we going to be faithful to use them? And he says, we glory in Christ. That it is a boast. There's nothing else to boast in but Jesus Christ for the Christian. And here he says, the third thing is put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul goes on to define that. You see, the Judaizers put confidence in their flesh. But Paul's going to say, you think you have reason for confidence in the flesh? Paul has more. And then he's going to say it's rubbish. It's all rubbish. All the confidence in the flesh, it doesn't matter. The, the word rubbish here, it means like a dog pile. Like it's garbage, it's trash, throw it away. And here's what he says. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Ritual will never save you. Ritual's not enough. 
He says, he's of the people of Israel. His race will not save you. Your race, your ethnicity isn't enough to save you. We praise God. God's given us different ethnicities and different races. That's a glorious, good thing. But it's not enough to save. Paul says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a special tribe. His mother, Rachel, loved Benjamin. Benjamin was a small tribe, but Jerusalem was in Benjamin, the, the, the favored city, the capital city. And Jer- Benjamin was the only tribe that stayed loyal to Judah when the split happened in the Old Testament. Special tribe. Know this, your rank, coming from a privileged situation, never enough to save you. He says that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means he kept the Hebrew traditions. Tradition won't save you. He says that he's a Pharisee, a a law follower. Keeping the rules won't save you. He says that he was, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Your passion will never be enough to save you. I praise God that the Lord gives us a passion for him. Based on different personalities and different cultures, that gets expressed differently. Last week, we celebrated Africa. I loved it. We had a very energetic, passionate service. I love that. Someone asked me afterwards, they said, Hey, Pastor Steve, you weren't moving very much. Uh, Why not? And I said, Well, I loved it. But when I move too much, it gets distracting. So uh, for some reason, I don't move real well. But I love watching God work in our church. I love the different cultures. It's a beautiful thing. But let me tell you, passion will never save. And just because somebody's more passionate outwardly than another person doesn't mean they're more holy or more spiritual. And then he says, as to righteousness, he was a law keeper. Being good, being obedient will never save you. Insufficient. I'm a good person. I help people. I'm kind. I'm loving. If your goodness is not for the glory of God, guess what it's for? The glory of you. You see, even some goodness that people exude is all about themselves. They want to be recognized as being good. They want to be recognized as being kind. No, we want our goodness to point to Jesus where people see, hey, there's nothing to look at me. I've been transformed by Jesus. Look to him. Our goodness won't save. In verse 7, Paul says, Whatever gain I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, listen to this. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's the greatest desire is to know Christ Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? I'm not just saying no about him. I'm not just saying know the facts, like a bunch of information. Even the demons know information about Jesus. Now, do you have a relationship where you walk with him? You talk with him. You, you trust in him. You say, God, speak to me through your word. I want your word to speak life to me. Do you have a relationship? That's what Paul says, knowing the Lord Jesus. That's what he wants to do. And he says, everything is rubbish. In verse 9, he says, He's found not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that comes through faith. There's two types of righteousness we see in Scripture. We see more, but primarily two that he's talking about here. One is a type of righteousness where you try to be good enough. It's your own righteousness. 
100% of the time, your own self-righteousness leads to destruction. Your own righteousness will 100% fail you. Your own righteousness will 100% of the time, you will not find your joy in the Lord in this life. But the other righteousness, the righteousness that comes by faith, by trusting the Lord, 100% of the time that righteousness is enough. It is sufficient. Christ is enough. We need nothing else. Jesus is enough. All your issues, all your problems, all your challenges in life, the answer comes back the same. Christ. Trust Christ. Draw near to Christ. He may not change your circumstances, but he'll give you joy in him, and you can have joy in the midst of challenges. Paul ends this part of the letter to the Philippians. Verse 10 and 11, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. That's how Paul wants to live. He's not speaking of the future resurrections guaranteed to all believers here. All Christians, we will, we will live forever. We'll be raised from the dead. New bodies. No, but there's a resurrection that when you become a Christian, you're dead spiritually and you become alive. You're raised to life. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He wants to live in the fullness of the resurrection. Let me ask you, are you living in the fullness of the resurrection? Is there anything you're trusting in in addition to Christ? Oh, you, you may be a, a Christian, you've trusted Christ, you believe Christ is alone, but in your flesh and in your temptation, you find yourself trusting in something else. Oh, I have to tell you, one of the biggest challenges of preaching God's Word is I come under God's Word. And you wrestle with it. And you have to evaluate your own heart and mind and life and say, what am I adding is there anything I'm saying, Christ, plus, in any sort of way in my life? No, we're only going to find it in Christ. I want to close with a quote from a man named Jonathan Edwards. Many of you haven't heard of Jonathan Edwards, but he's recognized as the greatest theological mind ever to step foot in the United States. He actually lived before it was the United States, when it was a colony. But his influence on some of the most brilliant theologians throughout the last 300 years is enormous. Hear what he says. He says, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, full to enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers Husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. They are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Are you settling for the substitutes? The shadows, as Jonathan Edwards says, looking to find your joy in the shadows 
rather than find them in Jesus Christ? Church, I pray that we are a joy-filled people, that we are a joy-filled church because of what Christ has done in our lives. Let's pray. God, you are good, you are gracious, you are worthy of praise. And Lord, if there's anything I've said that is confusing, less than your words from my own flesh, may it fall on deaf ears. But Lord, that which is true from your word, may it penetrate deeply. Lord, you've spoken to us through your Holy Spirit, through the word of God. So may we dwell in the word. May we delight in the word. May we trust in the word of God deeply. Lord, may we be a joyful people. And Lord, there's no joy we believe that's found outside of you. So forgive us for seeking joy outside of your majesty, your glory, and your goodness and your sufficiency. Lord, when we see that, may we repent. May we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus. Lord, protect us from sin by reminding us to find our joy in you alone. So Lord, may any here today that aren't tasting that, may you show them their sin, may they turn from it, and find their joy in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.